This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Cardiology and Heart Surgery Podcast. I'm excited today to be joined by Dr. Mark Pelletier, Division Chief of Cardiac Surgery at University Hospitals, part of Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. Dr. Pelletier, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Hi, Laura. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Before we jump into the questions, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure. So I live in Cleveland. I am the Chief of Cardiac Surgery at University Hospitals. University Hospitals is a fairly large healthcare center that comprises about 18 or 19 hospitals. We're part of the Case Western Reserve University Medical School. Uh, we, in cardiac surgery here, we have one large center at Cleveland Medical Center, and we have four community programs that are attached to our one program. So we do cardiac surgery in the university health systems at five different hospitals. Um, so I arrived here in August of 2019. Uh, prior to that, I was at Harvard University at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. And then prior to that, I was Chief of Cardiac Surgery at the New Brunswick Heart Center in New Brunswick, Canada, in Eastern Canada. So I'm Canadian and now living in the United States. Got it, got it. So um, from your perspective, going from Canada, now living in Cleveland, what are some of the pros and cons of a big move like that? Well, the reason I had come back to the U.S. was to be part of a larger academic center, and I, I missed that a little bit when I was in Canada, although I, I loved my life there. I'd been at Stanford before that, and I felt that it, it was nice to return to, to that type of setting. The, the large American centers are, are very nice to work in. They're innovative. They're busy. We have tremendous uh, talent in terms of young residents and students and fellows and these incredibly young motivated, bright, smart people that, that are involved in, in the care of our patients. So, so to be part of that is a really nice uh, work environment. Uh, the American system also allows us to be extremely innovative in some of the areas that we're working on. Uh, there's also a business component to the American healthcare system that's a little bit different than it is in, in Canada. So, so there are a lot of things in, in both systems that work incredibly well and, and that are challenging, but the challenges are a little bit different. This healthcare system, I felt, was extremely progressive, uh, going in the right direction. Uh, the hub-and-spoke model that we've developed in cardiac surgery here, where we can do cardiac surgery in smaller areas that are closer to people's homes, which is really nice for them and their family. Uh, so I, I thought, to me, that that was very attractive. Uh, I liked the leadership that was here at University Hospital, so I thought it was a, a really a good opportunity for my career and a, and a good place to work. So that's why I'm here. Fantastic. And, you know, I'm really excited for our conversation today. Let's start with what are the top three biggest issues that you're seeing in cardiology and in heart care today? Well, I mean, as we sit here in 2021, the biggest issue has been COVID, right? And so COVID, I think, will slowly abate, hopefully, and get better. But it's had a tremendous impact on how we practice, how we have practiced in the last year. And the impact has been felt not just here, but so many places across North America and still ongoing right now in many areas that are, are still being hit hard by this. Uh, but for us, what it's meant is that last year we saw a lot of patients staying away from hospitals, away from their physicians because of, of the height of the pandemic. And now we're seeing a lot of these patients coming back. And we've all noticed in the last month or two as these patients are coming back, maybe after not being seen for a long time, we're seeing patients that are a lot sicker, patients who you know, while this was going on, maybe not getting as much care as they normally would have uh, for various reasons, and, and now are coming in with more coronary disease, hearts that are a bit sicker. And for us, that 
that definitely is having a big impact on on our resources and, and the patients that we're having to treat. Just in a, as an example, uh, as of yesterday, we had seven patients on full life support, including an ECMO machine, which is essentially a coronary bypass circuit. So these patients are in complete heart and, and lung failure, and to have seven of those at one time is is really unusual for us. So I think, you know, emerging from the pandemic and dealing with with uh, the effects of that has been has been one big challenge. I'd say along those lines too is what we are seeing currently in North America is, and that's less of an acute change, but is an aging population, right? So we have now patients that are getting into their 80s and 90s and coming to us for cardiac care, which was very unusual before. And now every week we're seeing patients in their 80s and, and their 90s that are um, asking about valve replacements. They're asking about coronary bypass surgery. They're asking about invasive procedures that that are big procedures when you're 60 years old, but when you're in your 80s or your 90s, it becomes an even bigger procedure. So, you know, we're very fortunate because there have been a lot of technological advances, uh, but still that means that a lot of patients are, are coming to us and, and needing care, uh, and sometimes that can be a bit challenging as well. So those are some of the biggest things I, I think that we're seeing right now. Got it. Yeah, that's fascinating to to really look at not only the COVID side side of things and um, how that's impacting you know the way care is delivered, but then what the desires are of an aging population that's living longer and really wants to you know keep going and stay active. I can imagine that just brings in a ton of extra um, considerations when you're trying to think about what care means to them. Exactly. And, and aligning our priorities with the patient's priorities, right? Because there are a lot of patients that um, might be a little bit older and sicker and we can get them through a big operation, but does that is that what they really want? Because sometimes that entails a long recovery. Uh, it, it requires also a lot of family support sometimes that, that not everybody has. Um, and I think that's one challenge that we're seeing now. It, it used to be that kids would live with their parents for a long time or would be in the same city to help take care of them. but we have a population that's migrated now a lot more than it was migrating maybe 30, 40 years ago. So we see older parents are, are sometimes alone. Uh, they're alone and they have nobody else to, to really help them through these these big operations and these big recoveries. So, you know, that poses on, on the negative side kind of one challenge. You know, on, on the positive side, we're seeing the innovation and in technology and the ability to do things that we never would have been able to do before in, in heart care. So one of those big innovations is transcatheter aortic valve replacement, or TAVR. And what that has allowed us, it has allowed us to treat some of those patients in their 80s and 90s who have an aortic valve that is slowly getting narrowed and narrowing down, and they have difficulty breathing, they may have pain in their chest. And before, the only way to do an operation for those people would have been to do an open-heart surgery. And as you can imagine, Laura, to do an open-heart surgery when you're 90 years old is a really big deal, but now we can replace that valve with a tiny, small incision in the groin um, where they, they stay awake during the procedure, and if everything's going well, they go home the next day around lunchtime. So that, are, that ability for us to change valves and do things like that in a different way that's less traumatic to the patient and easier on them you know, means that we can treat more patients. We can treat them in a more humane and, and positive way. And I think for me that that's really exciting as we move forward. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that vision of the future. And how else do you see heart care evolving over the next 18 months or so? 
there are a few different levels, and I think it depends on where you are in the healthcare system, right? So if you're an administrator and you're looking after uh, a hospital and you need to secure contracts with insurance companies, with CMS, with all of those people, you need to provide value. And, and value is imperative that you provide extremely good results, uh, that you do so in an efficient manner, cost-effective manner, uh, and, and that you really track that extremely well. So I think what we've seen is really a set of metrics and a set of guidelines that have evolved in, in cardiac care over the last 10 or 20 years that are really based and, and focused on, on quality, on guidelines, on doing the right thing and doing it in a standardized manner. So I think on, on that aspect, that's what we're seeing. On For us as physicians, what's been very exciting and I think where things can, will continue to evolve is with the advances in technology uh, that we are seeing. And in cardiac care, those advances have been really incredible over the last 10 or 20 years. We touched on TAVR, which is a way to replace an aortic valve. There's now a procedure called MitraClip, which allows us to fix a mitral valve again through a small incision in the groin. We now, as surgeons, are repairing mitral valves through a small incision between the ribs on the right side of the body, maybe a, a three-inch incision as opposed to having to make an incision on their, their sternum. We're seeing now some of our colleagues in cardiology with drug-eluting stents who can stent really complicated lesions that they couldn't get to before. Uh, they're now able to open arteries that are completely blocked, which five to ten years ago was something that was very difficult to do. So our, our colleagues in technology are bringing to us these amazing tools and devices that allow us as physicians, uh, sometimes, in, again, in the appropriate setting, in the appropriate patient, in the appropriate circumstance, to, to do things that we just were not able to do before. So we're able to help more people. We're able to touch more lives. And, and I think with that, it's it's all about improving two things, quality of life and, and hopefully meaningful survival. And, and I think we've made a, a strong impact on that. Absolutely, absolutely. That makes a ton of sense. And what are you most excited about today and what makes you nervous? Well, maybe I'll start with the second part of that question. I think what makes me nervous a little bit is when you look at the demographics um, of our society in North America, um, and we don't see this everywhere, and you see, definitely see it in some regions more than you do in others, but by demographics, what I mean is that we we continue to have a smoking rate that is probably around 20%. Um, we've had legalization of cannabis in many states, and we don't know the effects of that over the long term. In some areas, we have areas that have very high rates of obesity with high cholesterol and hypertension. Uh, we are seeing that increasingly in some of our younger patients who are coming in uh, with a BMI that is well in excess of, of 35, which is a definition of morbid obesity. And so, uh, and, and we're seeing some signs in the last couple of years that we may be on the verge of, of the first time having life expectancy in North America decline for the first time in many, many uh, decades. So I would say that for me, that's a little bit of a concern uh, because I think when you overall look at our, our younger population now as a whole, uh, I think there are some signs that it may be less healthy uh, than it was maybe 20 or 30 years ago at the same time point. So the impact of that is, as those younger people get older, uh, that's a little bit concerning to me and maybe makes me a little bit nervous. Um, in terms of what I'm excited about, I, I think that we we have a better understanding, and as we move forward with healthcare systems for 
not just doing some of the work that I described to you, which is really that tertiary level care or advanced level of care of treating patients, but I think we have good opportunities as we move forward to increase preventative care, uh, to have really very good directed guideline therapy for uh, blood pressure, for smoking cessation, for treatment uh, of high cholesterol. Um, I'm encouraged by some of the advancements in, in diabetes. I think if we can get to a point where we can reverse the trend of diabetes that is going up in the United States, that that would be tremendously helpful because we know that that can be a, a devastating disease from a cardiovascular standpoint. And again, some of the research that's going on, some of the industrial advancements that have happened in, in all of those fields, I, I think, are exciting. So I continue to be excited as a surgeon, as a proceduralist, uh, about the devices that are coming. I think that there are, are really innovative uh, devices that are in the pipeline that are undergoing rigorous research trials. And I think when some of those are available to the public, they'll have a meaningful and a beneficial effect. And and that's really in my field, it's exciting to know that things like that are, have come and, and will continue to come. That's really fantastic to hear. And especially when you think about, you know, some of the possibilities for um, reversing some of the negative trends that have happened um, across the U.S. and the population. I think, you know, it, it's just fantastic to, to see some of those advancements. Now, before we uh, end our conversation here, how, can you share three pieces of advice for emerging physician leaders today? Yes. Yeah, so I think we, all of us who are in leadership roles have, have gotten here through different methods and, and means. Um, and when I look at, at that, I think all of us would probably draw on some lessons that, that, that we've learned. I, I think one of them is that when we finish medical school and then we go through residency training program, there are very, very few of us that are actually trained to be leaders or have taken courses, whether it's a master's of public health or a master's of business administration. But increasingly, being a leader isn't just standing in front of a room and, and, and talking to your team. It's really understanding as a physician all the aspects of leadership. So for me as a division chief, it means understanding quality metrics. It means understanding uh, the financial metrics, understanding value, understanding where we need to save money, understanding where we need to spend money maybe in order to grow uh, and to be more innovative or sometimes spending money in some areas so we can save money in other areas. So there are very few of us that, that come through residency training, eventually get a leadership position, whether it's a division chief or a department chair or anything like that, and have had much formal training. So my advice would be for some people that are thinking about that, and, and, and we know a lot of people will know within themselves that they will want to take on a leadership role. I mean, if you were valedictorian, if you're president of your class, if you've always had that leadership aspiration, you're probably going to evolve to that as you evolve in your practice. So seeking some training and seeking maybe formal courses on, on how to do that, I, I think, is incredibly important. For those that – and I didn't have I, – much of that training, but what I did, uh, and I would highly encourage other leaders to do this, is to seek mentorship or coaching. Uh, the world of coaching has really evolved tremendously in the last 10 to 20 years, especially as it relates to healthcare. Uh, I've, I've hired a coach on three separate occasions, and it's been an incredibly valuable uh, experience for me personally uh, to have a coach and to work with somebody. Uh, and for me specifically, it was on the leadership aspects. How do I become a, a better leader? Where are the things that I'm faulty at uh, and where are the things that I, I'm good at? You know, so for me, 
as a specific example, I learned that I didn't really like difficult conversations and sometimes would put them aside or, or delay them. And what you learn sometimes is it the longer you put aside a, a difficult conversation, uh, the longer the problem will persist and, and somebody may see you as an ineffective leader. So again, I, I learned that through coaching and I would highly recommend it, uh, you know, as a possibility. So I think, you know, some type of formal training, some type of coaching mentorship uh, in more of a formal way, I think can be extremely valuable for, for young leaders as they get into the field of, of different aspects of leadership in medicine. Dr. Pelletier, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really fascinating discussion, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Well, thank you, Laura. It's been a pleasure. Thank you again.